Welcome Seasteaders to the Seasteading Today podcast episode with Elliot Roth about algae. Elliot is the founder of Spira Inc. Spira develops pigments and dyes from microalgae, and Elliot explores how algae and seaweed cultivation can change the foundations of our global supply chain. Enjoy. So Elliot, to get started, why don't you tell us what first piqued your interest about algae and how you got started? Yeah, so I got started working with algae back in about 2016, um, more out of necessity than, than anything else. And I started out by um, like looking into ways to feed myself. I it was doing food insecure, and I ended up taking on some clients that never paid me anything. And I don't know if anybody's done consulting work, but it's pretty crappy when you have people that don't pay. So it was either watch out, move into my parents' basement or figure something out. And I decided to space geek. I looked at what NASA was doing for astronauts and they were growing algae. And so I figure, you know, if it's not killing the astronauts, it's probably not going to kill me. And so I started growing these big tanks of algae uh, in, in aquarium tanks and these green bubbling cauldrons of slime and eating that as my main protein intake. And I lived on that for about two and a half months when I got started, um, that whatever food waste I could find. So that was kind of what got me started on algae. I realized pretty soon thereafter that it could be used in a number of different things, ranging from wastewater treatment to CO2 capture to, uh, bio mining to all kinds of different stuff and, uh, everything in between to manufacture the basic fundamental building blocks of the world that we end up using. And so uh, that's how I got started. And seven years later, here we are producing pigments of all things as a, as a starting point of ushering in a biomanufacturing revolution. Uh, wow. So bioengineering manufacturing revolution. Okay. I want to hear more about that. So tell me more about, about that, about changing the way our industrial food system sources pigments and other materials. Yeah, yeah, just manufacturing in general. Um, so, I mean, this is really pertinent to seasteads. The way that we manufacture things is hugely complex and cumbersome. It comes from all over the world, goes all over the world again in order to create uh, stuff like the devices that we end up using. Um, sort of insane that we have this complex and cumbersome supply chain and that, uh, you know, sometimes all of a sudden this global panorama or like a really big panini comes along and ruins the supply chains that we end up having. And so one of the key things that I really took a look at was how do you localize supply chains? How do you undo or redo the manufacturing systems that we end up using for the basic ingredients and materials that we end up using? And in particular, how do you go about replacing the conventional petrochemical means of manufacturing? It's pretty extractive. Uh, so over the past like 150 years, we just sucked stuff out of the ground, lit it on fire, and that's how we get most of the stuff around us, right? So instead, what if you could grow the basic materials and things around us? What if you could do things like, um, you know, it's use those biological organisms to treat waste, uh, to process, or to do things like CO2 capture? And so in particular, with my background in synthetic biology and genetics, I set off on this path to uncover how do you go about localizing supply chains and uh, sort of like reclaiming the means of production uh, on site. And so I became a seasteading ambassador back in like 2015 or so, and I was looking at ways of uh, producing and manufacturing all, all of the materials that you need to have a sustainable, uh, completely enclosed, um, sustained habitat, similar in nature to what you would have on a seastead. And um, yeah, so I started doing that initially with food, just because I thought it was one of the most pertinent things. I sort of approached things on the basis of Maslow's hierarchy of needs. So uh, food, water, shelter, things like that. If you don't have them, it kind of operates on the rule of threes. So three minutes uh, without air, you die. Uh, three weeks without, three, three days without water, uh, three weeks without food. Those are the basic things that if you some some people say that if the supply chains broke down in the span of three days we would have riots uh, because we wouldn't be able to have the foods that we conventionally consume and with the world in conflict as it stands right now it's kind of scary to think that there may come a time when you won't be able to to get access to basic nutrients i'm actually going back to my roots and starting something called the super slime me diet uh, sort of like supersize me um, I don't know if there's a place where I can post a link or anything like that, but uh, I'm going to be eating a diet of algae 
uh, starting out with a week and then potentially expanding to a month just to see if all of these dystopian apocalyptic films have something uh, that is worthwhile. So here, I'll post the experiment uh, in the chat right here. But yeah, the, the overall idea is that by using, but it's kind of like a first principle perspective. So going to the base level of the food chain, uh, how do you get pure energy from the sun converted into useful materials? How do you, you got to get as efficient as possible at converting that energy into uh, useful things for us to use? Um, so that's kind of where the genesis of using algae is and how we might be able to apply that in more localized fashion on Seastead. I think what I know from science fiction, which of course is uh, irrefutable, when people have had to survive on algae, it's just kind of unpleasant. So it seems to be like nutritionally complete, but maybe not the most pleasant eating experience. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. But I don't think anybody's actually tried it. I was looking all over the literature to see whether or not there was uh, evidence of somebody actually living on algae, and I couldn't find it. So that's kind of the genesis of this. So and are you going to have different um, different varieties to provide different nutrients? Yeah, yeah. So uh, I'm going to get most of my protein from spirulina and chlorella. I'm going to get most of my calories and fats from nanochlorosis and schizochytrion. And then I'm going to get more of the taste and texture from various seaweeds. So kelp, yeah, kombu, right, of course, uh, bladder rack, seed lettuce. There's ulva, like tons of different types of seaweed, uh, wakame, arame, just all sorts, and you can get all kinds of really interesting tastes, textures, uh, various things. I'm going to try to make cheeses, breads, uh, burger, those kind of things, making it so that, like like you said, it's not always the most enjoyable when they're in the middle of surviving on only algae. Uh, I'm going to try to see whether or not we can make it actually enjoyable and something something that people can do as opposed to have to do if they're in apocalyptic situations. Would you say more about what the goal is for our food system. I mean, I'm guessing that you don't expect all of us to like suddenly have the the majority of our diet come from algae, at least not in the short term, but like what would you like to see changes at a at a more I don't want to say reasonable, but what could you what kind of changes could you expect to see as Americans in particular accept more seaweed and algae into their diet? Yeah, yeah. Well, I think we we have a malnutrition problem in the world currently, both from uh, certain people not getting enough nutrients and other people getting too many nutrients. And this malnutrition problem affects kids currently. And then um, 45% of children under five actually die of malnutrition. And so in particular, when you look at the world and the growing population, how do we feed everybody? And the, world, the ocean comprises about 70% of the total landmass, which is a huge formable area. So why not tap into the ocean as a means of supplying localized nutrition, especially if kind of the, the world's population lives near a coastline. And so in particular, when we take a look at the way that we are shaping our destiny right now, we have mass scale animal agriculture, which is uh, responsible for about 20% or more of global carbon emissions. Uh, we have these, these really unsustainable food systems that end up fueling the average American diet. And so if I can present in such a way uh, an algae diet that kind of is approachable, I mean, maybe you're definitely not going to eat algae, only algae for 30 days, but you could substitute some meals or a diet or include it as an ingredient, it starts becoming more and more a part of our diets. And then that is a microcosm of how I imagine algae as the fundamental basis of our supply chain or manufacturing in general. So food is the initial beachhead uh, into being able to use algae for a variety of different things, uh, ranging from treating all of these like waste outputs and materials, different things that we might be able to use in these little uh, tiny microcosms of society that you find on Seastead or even in space. So um, I did want to draw attention to people. We do have a video series on our YouTube channel called Eating Like a Seasteader. Um, two seasteading ambassadors went through a series of recipes, and a lot of them do use different types of seaweed. So if you're looking for seaweed recipes, um, check out that video series. Or just drop stuff in the chat, too. I'm going to also include a link to um, how I built my own lab, kind of a, an overview of how to build your own laboratory. What's sort of the starter kit to do that? 
Yeah, yeah. It's it's like um sort of an instructional guide on how to build your own genetic engineering laboratory. So I've, I've built labs all over. My more my most recent one was in a shipping container, but they've been in basements, kitchens, and attics of mansions and all over the place. So yeah, you can build a lab virtually anywhere to do genetic engineering work. Uh, would you consider seaweed cultivation sort of a good um, business idea for someone who's maybe not uh, currently in the maritime industry but wants to seastead? Sure. I, well, I think farming sucks just in general. Um, that's just the way that uh, the world is built right now is that farming, mar the margins for farming are pretty minuscule. Um, if you want to do things like, for example, keep chickens or grow a garden, I highly, highly recommend that. I think it's really important to practice this, this idea of like victory gardens, whatnot, to help sustain yourself and, and kind of like add in to your diet. Um, it also tends to have people live longer. It's the very nature, it's the very basis of being outside, working in a garden, uh, taking care of animals, all those kind of things end up adding years to your life. And so for folks that don't have a means of like taking care of some kind of plant life or something like that. Algae is a good example of something where uh, you get a lot of bang for your buck, though. And so maybe not like seaweed farming, farming necessarily, but uh, something on the order of like, I don't know, an algae tank would be kind of cool or duckweed or uh, something in your pond, some, something like that, where it's useful, it's usable, it's something that you could use either for your and what's the processing like? So let's say I have a vat of algae growing. What do I do to make it usable? Yeah, yeah. So you and I were talking a little bit about this before um, everybody joining, but uh, algae can be used to produce a variety of different things. So I, I call it the four P's uh, is how my company has been approaching things. So you got pigments, you got proteins, plastics, and pharmaceuticals. Those are the four P's. And one of the key things that I tend to take a look at when uh, working with algae is how easy is it to get stuff out of it? So why we're focused on pigments is that it's actually relatively easy to get colors out of algae. Um, you know, they, they grow uh, using photosynthetic pigments. And so they're already naturally present, are really easy because they produce a lot of them as means of absorbing all the light. Uh, and then the artificial colors that we end up using for food, cosmetics, and textiles are pretty nasty. It makes a lot of algae replace these pigments. Low value, volume, high margin. Uh, we approach it kind of like a Tesla Roadster sort of thing. So start off really, really high end and work our way down. Um, edible proteins are a little bit more challenging to end up pulling out, but you can use a very simple like coffee filtration style method, pull out all the edible proteins. Um, so think of where you're growing your algae is this green pond. And all you have to do is sort of like skim the pond to pull up whatever useful material, usable material. Then you want to pop open the cells and then filter out the uh, proteins from everything else. And so you use just like microfiltration, ultrafiltration, centrifugation. Those are the three main machines or methods that you use to pull out all of the edible proteins and then separate pigments, proteins from everything else. Some of the other useful items are stuff like fuel and plastics because of the density of algae and how you have to grow it and um, how there is really easily available uh, oil sources elsewhere. Um, you, you can grow your own fuel. You just have to grow it in such a large volume and process it in such a way you got to like heat it up and really crack open the fuel um, that it makes more economic sense right now at least to just extract oil from the ground. I would uh, foresee a future like we were talking about where seasteads would be able to generate their own fuel um, if you have large enough uh, area to grow your algae or if you have a, a way to sort of like heat it up and process it in the proper way using something called hydrothermal liquefaction is is one of the main ways of producing fuel uh, but like all those sargassum blooms um, that is there's like this 5,000 mile uh, sargassum bloom that hit Florida and is continuing to overrun the coast of Florida all of that is useful material only for like or, uh, stuff like rubber or plastics or fuel, um, only if you know how to use it properly and have the energy to process it in the right kind of way. So I think algae can be used as a material beyond just the pigments that we're selling. We're only selling pigments initially just because we know we can make money on it. So um, 
yeah, starting to delve into stuff like engineered enzymes or protein-based sweeteners or other more esoteric things as we start coming down the cost curve. And then eventually, if you want to produce things like uh, insulin or penicillin or other things like that, uh, there are certain ways to go about producing that in algae as well. Uh, but it requires some genetic engineering and the actual like sterility, clean, cleanliness, and means of producing those things is uh, different every single time. So that that's kind of the extent of the different products that algae can work on. Sure, there's more that I can't think of. So, I mean, I, I definitely take your point that extracting oil is more efficient than making fuel from algae. But do you think that in the near future, if you're seasteading, I mean, does the, does the, does the fact of being located floating on the ocean, does that remove some of the cost? You know, if you can process it at location and could that possibly remove some of the cost to producing the biofuel? Yeah, yeah. Well, what I would say is that you got to look at what are what are you surrounded by? And you're surrounded by water, right? And one of the key means of like fuel sources that I would say, particularly for like heating and cooking would be hydrogen gas, just because it's readily available, it's plentiful around you. Uh, meaning that you can produce hydrogen gas via electrolysis quite, that's, that's like a conventional process, right? And so I'd say hydrogen gas is, is really a thing to, to probably get out on the ocean. Uh, beyond that, if you need more complex fuel sources, um, stuff like gasoline or like kerosene or other things like that, one of the first means of getting access to those would be oil rigs, floating oil platforms. And after that, if you do have the, the sufficient length, the, the area to grow things, floating bagged photobioreactors are a way to go about producing lots of algae. Um, and then cracking that open for oil or fuel might be really, really useful. There's some recent fast growing species that actually excrete oil uh, around them. Those are really, really interesting, particularly because then you can just skim the oil off the top because oil and water are immiscible, right? Immiscible liquid. So you can just hold the oil off the top of whatever liquid you're growing it in. But I, I'm more of a fan of also the different kind of services that algae can provide. So let's say you're out in the middle of nowhere and end up generating a lot of like pee and poop. Everybody pee, everybody poops. There's a book about it you can read up on it. How do you deal with all of that waste? You end up having a fertilizer nearby. Uh, when we end up dumping all of our waste or nitrates, phosphates, uh, fertilizer out into the ocean, we end up generating algae blooms. So why not just use those algae blooms for a positive benefit? Uh, my team ended up coming up with a, like a pitch long time ago as a means of treating all of these algal blooms using uh, retaining ponds. And so, like, for example, in Florida, the Everglades have, like, huge algal blooms, like Okeechobee has giant algae blooms all the time from, like, farmers that end up having wastewater runoff into the water. So instead, what if you had different ponds that steadily treat naturally as, as sort of like a swamp land sort of thing, where as the water passes through, it ends up treating the wastewater and then um, out comes clean water. And so you can do those kind of things with various microbes and algae, uh, treating waste, breaking it down in different stages and reclaiming a lot of those nutrients to be used in other ways. And so uh, that we, we ended up doing this project for like some unnamed uh, Arabian country. We didn't even know which one it was, but they wanted us to treat all the wastewater from a protein processing plant. And so uh, treat the CO2 and wastewater from a protein processing plant. So it's ridiculous, but the key thing that seasteads have that is an advantage as opposed to being in the middle of a desert or anything in it. It's, it's too cloudy, it's too dirty, it's too, too much nutrients, kills off things. So what you want to do is dilute pretty heavily, and then from that, you can actually grow your algae. Most algal species grow on some sort of salty water of some sort. Um, so treating wastewater is one key thing. Uh, the same process that treats wastewater and absorbs minerals uh, can also be used to mine minerals and pull metals out of various solutions. So RPE just put out a call to action to, um, I think it was a request for proposals for use the use of seaweed to mine rare earth elements from seawater. And being a lot of the uh, heavy metal contaminants that you might find in algal species are because they make metals from their surrounding environment. So imagine you're in a seastead and you want to be completely independent um, and be out there forever. How do you produce electronics? How do you produce your base metals or minerals or, or basic, um, I don't know, like even 
a anything copper or anything that you might need as a means of uh, producing like an antenna or radio or you know basic electronics one of the ways to go about doing that is actually using algae to mine those metals around so there's tiny amounts of metals parts per trillion in seawater and so being able to grab those out of the seawater is, is one particular approach of things that uses the same concept of treating wastewater just at a somewhat larger scale, particularly for metals. Um, so I spent a good six months working on a project to focus around mining gold. Um, sadly, that project didn't end up getting funded either. But yeah, it is without a doubt something feasible and something that we will see in our lifetimes implemented in some kind of way. So your project to treat the water of the protein plant did you come up, you know, in the the results of that project, were you able to come with something that might be scalable to add to other industries? Mm -hmm. So the key key word there is scalable, right? So one of the, the challenges approaching those kind of large problems is that the more waste that you have to treat, the larger the scope of whatever you're, you're like trying to process. On personal waste, that would be one thing. I think that I could design a system that is a couple thousand liters to treat my own personal waste. But if I have to then scale that to even the people in this audience, now I'm getting up to tens of thousands, right? And so it, it scales pretty exponentially with the sheer number of people, the sheer amount of waste that you have to treat, particularly because you have to dilute, you have to add in and balance out the nutritional levels. Um, everybody's diets is going to be are going to be varied, and so your outputs are going to be varied, and then you have to control for that. And so wastewater treatment plants, I don't know if, if anybody is very aware of this, but they do a heroic effort every single day to treat and deal with all of our shit quite literally. And so, uh, yeah, if you ever meet somebody who's working in wastewater treatment, seriously, like give them a round of applause because it's wild the kind of things that they have to do as a means of treating and processing all of it. It's pretty amazing. Well, I think policy-wise, it seems to me that there are more news articles I'm hearing about of wastewater, municipal water treatments being in trouble or not, you know, whether it's due to not keeping up with maintenance or having other limitations or having other issues that they're dealing with. But yeah, it's, um, I, I wonder if they need some resiliency They that they're, you know, these water treatment systems have been built hundred years ago and uh, we need some innovation in the way that our American cities clean our water. Yeah. Exactly. It's kind of a, a growing problem as well. Oftentimes what we end up doing with waste is just dumping it somewhere. And if you're in the ocean and you're dumping waste somewhere, it just spreads around you, right? And so you can't really escape from it. You're like swimming in it. It's like peeing in the pool, right? You're, you're swimming around, you're peeing in the pool. Eventually the pool is going to be 99% pee. So like, what do you, what do you do as a means of treating that water before you release it? Um, I think the, the other kind of thing that I, I like to think of in terms of algae is how do you actually build structures and platforms and other, other type things? I think that when you're treating waste, the two forces, and, and this is stemming from my background, I used to actually use mushrooms as building materials. I think the two things that uh, will really benefit seasteads are mushrooms and mycelium and uh, algae. And if you have those two things, then you can do most everything. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about, about seasteads. So before we started recording, you're talking about when you're looking at a structure at a home and you looked at this in space, but I think it applies to seasteads as well, that what are outputs versus inputs? So can you explain that that framework? Yeah. So I like to think of things as more or less like systems of inputs and outputs. And maybe this comes from my training as a biomedical engineer, but any like sustainable society has a bunch of inputs and a bunch of outputs. So our inputs are stuff like our basic necessities. So like food, water, shelter, things like that. They need to go into a society, a, a, a seastead. And then the outputs are stuff like waste or, um, you know, manufactured materials, upcycled materials, whatever that society ends up building, uh, different things like that. So when we're talking about all of our inputs, a lot of those inputs have to do with like, how do you get clean water? How do you get basic food and nutrition? Once those two are covered, you're more or less covered in, in shelter. Those three things are covered. Then you can start self-actualizing You can start looking at, you know, how do you enable the society as a whole? How do you create more complex things? And in particular, that's where algal systems as a manufacturing platform come into play. That's where mycelium system um, into play as sort of like structural building materials, as treating all these wastes. 
So when I was getting started, this is actually how I first got started in seasteading. I was actually growing mushroom blocks that would be floating platforms. Um, on whatever waste materials that we can end up finding. And I've tried that in analog astronaut habitat. So I lived in a habitat in Hawaii, testing out breathing waste and treating compost and forming that into structural building materials using mushrooms and then growing algae in small systems to feed our habitat and treat the, the waste CO2 that we were generating. So when you're thinking about these kind of microcosms of systems, these little biospheres that are flowing out in the ocean, how do you make sure that you account for all of your inputs, all of your outputs, manage them accordingly so that uh, you're not going about, going out of balance, going out of whack, and that you can actually grow as a society, as a structure, because when you're out there, there is definitely limited resources and scarcity of things unless you go about creating abundance. Is there anything else you wanted to talk about, about Spira in particular? I mean, I think uh, our network is people who uh, have an entrepreneurial mind. So any advice for entrepreneurs? Yeah, I think the two bits of advice that I got were the, the thing that ends a company is that you either run out of money or you give up, right? So that's one thing is that if you persevere and just keep on going and work on a time frame of hundred years or more, as opposed to working on a time frame of like a day or a week or a month or a year or something like that, uh, then you can outlast whoever else is around you and you'll eventually follow through and be successful, whatever you define success as. I think the, the other key thing is that when you're listening to feedback and trying to incorporate all these things, try to build from the end state of the world that you have in mind. And in particular, try to build from the utopia picture, utopic picture that you have. Utopia stands for no place, which I think is really an intriguing concept where it doesn't exist until you go about creating it. And I like to approach things from this mindset of like Takuno Olam, where you go about uh, fixing and healing the world as is. And that's sort of the underlying reason. I think if you have the means to do something, you have a moral imperative to actually follow through and fix what you see in the world. And so that's the, the other thing, too, is that I would say approach things with ETI, which is this concept of um, having purpose in what you do, making sure that it makes money and uh, that you're good at it and that it, it accomplishes some sort of global good. I think those are the four things. I'll look up ETI again just to make sure that I can quote properly. There's like a quad Venn diagram where what you love, what you're good at, what's good for the world, and what you can be paid for. So that's, that's the other thing. So number one, don't give up, keep going, work on a hundred year time scales, work from the utopic picture that you have backwards, and then try to practice this like the guy concept, because uh, when you put something out in the world, it might hit one of those quadrants, it might hit all four. Um, if it hits all four, then you're on. Would you mind sharing the utopic vision that is propelling you at the moment? And has it changed in the, in the years since you've had your career? So I think when I got started, I still had this picture in my mind. Like the minute that I started growing algae for myself, I started shaping this picture, this idea that we would have localized production of things. And I think that in, in order to really engender the industrial revolution, like 4.0, we've defined things on the basis of um, materials. So we've had the Stone Age, the Bronze Age, the uh plastics age the silicon age right is the age that we're in right now but humanity has been limited in our comprehension and our ability to create things on the basis of the materials that we have on hand material science is one of the main limiters of progress and so i think that we're moving into the biomaterials age and if so biomanufacturing will be what enables us to achieve this this abundant mindset this idea of moving up maslow's hierarchy of needs to achieve self-actualization for most everybody the majority of human conflict comes in the form of not having your basic necessities. And so you covet what your neighbor has because you don't have food, water, shelter, this basic thing. And so when taking a look at the world state, what I imagine happening is not having to worry about basic survival, basic necessities, basic needs by being able to have access to that on hand. Something like a biocomputer that can provide sort of like a food replicator. You go up to it, you say Earl Grey tea hot and it's able to provide stuff on hand almost instantaneously. And so doing stuff like a uh, digital to biological converter, where you go from information into actual output, those kind of things are what I imagine a future state to be where 
at our fingertips, we're able to have these like matter compilers able to actually create and shape the world around us. And we can do that by using some of the fundamental building blocks of biology and using direct energy conversion from light into materials. And so that's part of the reason why I looked at algae, where I see it as a means of producing and creating base level materials, whether it's food, whether it's uh, functional building materials, medicines, other things like that on site effortlessly, wherever we are, whether it's a home biocomputer or a neighborhood bio mainframe of some sort, something that grows the, the things that you need. And engenders a, a world in which we can transcend uh, the, the sort of societal structures and constraints that we currently have that are necessitated on the basis of specialty and uh, localization of resource. And so this, this kind of creates an abundant, a, a abundant society and a, a means of uh, creating these little tiny biospheres that can go out into the ocean or go out into the cosmos. And uh, I think that this is the stepping stone as a means of enabling human flourishing and more of like the human diaspora into the universe. And so that's part of the reason why I'm working on it. Wow, that's, um, that's amazing. That's a lot to think about. So I'm gonna let that sit for a second. <laughs> um, we do have a couple of questions in the chat from Waffle King. First one is, what are the biggest challenges for your company right now? And the second is, what could other people make that would help you and your team? Yeah, yeah. One of the biggest challenges is that we're really small team. I am really looking for capital as a means of scaling what we're doing that would help immensely because being able to work with really high caliber, talented people, I have a number of people that are very interested in joining the team that I've been unable to pay just because we don't have cash on hand to be able to bring them on board. So um, that's one of the key things. In particular, we're looking for clients in food and cosmetics. Uh, that'll help immensely as a means of just being able to place more materials and ingredients and displace artificial colors, which are made with coal tar, pretty nasty that we end up eating that or putting that on our face. What could other people make that would help you and your team? If you want one of the key things, go to the website, request a sample, uh, purchase something, uh, you can make recipes that really helps us because it showcases the broadness and applicability of the different pigments that we have. If you have a background in genetics or if you have a background in biology, uh, start growing some algae, start engineering some algae. The more people that are involved in the community effort to actually engineer algae, the, the better. That really, really helps. Um, some of the other things that I'm looking for are introductions to various uh, financiers, investors, other things like that. So I hope that answers your question. Well, I, I just saw a commercial for, shoot, one of the famous chefs is doing a Shark Tank-like show now. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So David Zilber is doing a, a cooking show. And we actually used to send ingredients and materials to David at Noma, uh, one of the best restaurants in the world. But they just actually shifted over. They, they won their three Michelin stars consistently. They were rated number one in the world. And they retired while they were ahead. And so now... Uh, I think he's doing a cooking show, so I don't know what he's been up to, but yeah, he and I have chatted a little bit about potentially uh, incorporating more algae ingredients materials. Would food systems, would Spira fit into the same financial channels as like most venture capital? Like we hear about sort of Silicon Valley venture capital stuff, you know, that gets reported in the press, but it would seem to me that the investors who are investing in our food systems might be in a different place. Like you wouldn't have the same network as other venture capitalists. Um, kind of. I mean, I recently picked up and moved to San Francisco specifically for that reason, for fundraising purposes. So I am here for that particular reason. My lab is still in Los Angeles. My team's still in Los Angeles, but I, I picked up and moved here. I would say that we are venture back scalable in, in that regard. Uh, the challenge with venture capital time horizons for returns is pretty limited when you consider the scope of our of our challenges of our problems. I've talked to some venture capital firms that are talking about like displacing a gigaton of CO2 by 2050. However, their time horizon of returns are seven to 10 years. So what does that mean when your venture capital firm is not going to be around to see the actual impact of your work. So that's kind of key to the people that I'm trying to connect with are people that, that have a lot broader and grander ambitions that are a lot more patient, that are looking ahead and looking at completely transforming the way that we do things, not just being content with incremental advances or quick exits and quick financial returns. 
Well, it makes me wonder if that utopian vision that you shared might require a, a widespread shift in focus if we need to have longer time horizon. We need to, I mean, I was talking with someone about the scale of like, if you're thinking about healing humanity of certain traumas, would it take 5,000 years? And how do you like stay focused on your little piece of that? You know, like, like we're just not in the habit. And I don't know if it's a cultural thing or if it's, if it's a human thing to be thinking about short-term results rather than being able to think more long-term. Yes, as a hot take, and, and Thomas Kuhn writes about this in Structure of Scientific uh, Revolutions, it's called the old white man problem. So generally what you have to do is you wait every generation for older people to die off for new scientific advancements to happen. Because despite the way that science works on the basis of scientific method, if you have something new, new evidence presented, and the scientific method works in such a way that you say, oh yeah, this is better. Uh, the established governance or scientific elite or whoever is in, in place tends to resist change, it gets more conservative as they, as they age and get older. And so invariably what you have to have happen is have them die off in order for a new guard to come along and make some kind of advancement. The world is speeding up as well. The adoption curve for new technologies is a lot faster nowadays than it was before. And so there is this, this kind of tension, too, where as we make advancements in longevity and people get older, does it mean that we get more and more ossified and entrenched in whatever current established paradigms are and more bureaucratic in our systems? Or do we get more flexible, dynamic in terms of technical adoption and response? Um, I think that things are simultaneously both speeding up and slowing down. And so it's really interesting to be at the intersection of where these conflicts meet. Uh, in the development of new, new technology. Well, and that's where seasteading offers the competitive advantage to get out. And instead of relying on existing institutions, you get out, out from under them. It's risky, but it also has the potential to, to have a, a huge impact on innovation. Yeah, I've been working with special economic zones as a means of understanding where we can grow our genetically engineered algae. That's been really intriguing because we, we grow in these pond systems, they're extremophiles, anything outside of that like pond is not going to be alive. And understanding what are the regulatory barriers, what are the boundaries that the EPA, USDA, and FDA end up setting, why those are set, they, they're established with good reason. However, where do we go in the world as a means of experimenting? You know, Foucault talks about these hermetic societies, and that's what really drew me to seasteading in the first place, because you can push the boundary of what is uh, what is conventionally socially acceptable in these hermetic societies, because you don't have to fear pushing that boundary. Whereas if you were in the main mass society, uh, you would be ostracized, you would be ostracized, you would you'd be kicked out, you know. And so these tiny little microcosms, these little biospheres, how do you go about experimenting in such a way that these things can happen? Like my algae diet is an example of this experimentation as well. I don't expect people to follow the same diet, inspire all kinds of different thoughts, conversations, other things like that. And if that's what I can do, then it starts moving the ball forward. So like, like Elis with uh, electric vehicles as well. We didn't have electric vehicles. There was nothing on the radar for electric vehicles uh, back in like the early 2000s whatsoever. And then Tesla came along with the Roadster and started shifting the conversation. And then open source, the uh, AC induction motor that they were creating and electric drivetrain and all of that. And so now you see most automakers are shifting completely away from anything gas powered. And so sort of, sort of intriguing how uh, technical innovation can start shifting the conversation. And in, in particular right now, what I see in biotechnology, synthetic biology, is that there's a lot of public claims that we're going to like produce lab-grown meat or we're going to uh, produce uh, plastics or fuels or all kinds of these like grandiose statements. But one of the things that I'm looking forward to is, is being able to actually scale those ambitions. Right now, we work with 83 farms in 15 countries. Uh, we have a capacity of about 550 metric tons of engineered materials every month. And I'm looking to put that to use. So if you know anybody who wants to produce things using algae, uh, more than happy to, to talk to them. Yeah, I mean, you should talk to our active projects, Seabrick. They want to build floating bricks from seaweed. So maybe there's, maybe you guys are using the same materials. So that would be, that would be good. Uh, I, so we have about 15 minutes left of our scheduled time. And I, again, want to invite people in the audience to ask questions. 
seeing a few people who are regulars who usually like to ask questions, but you seem to be very quiet today. Speaking of utopia, we have a book club uh, starting in June on the book Ecotopia, which was written in the 70s. And it's about, uh, it's not necessarily about seasteading, but it is about uh, forming a new kind of society that is more in tuned with natural processes. So that should be, (laughs) yeah, should be a good discussion there. It's kind of interesting to think about if we are changing well, one thing in Ecotopia that I found really fascinating is that they all clothing is sold, clothing and textiles are sold, not dyed because they didn't want to use industrial dyes. And so people will use natural dyes at home to for their towels and clothes and things. And I thought, you know, what kind of daily habits will have to change if we're changing the way that we source the items that we use in our daily life? There's this expectation of of reproducibility and consistency in manufacturing right now, where you expect that if you have an object that it's going to be the same every single time because it comes off of manufacturing line and that's the way it is. Although the desire of individuals is to express your individual and you see a hundred other people wearing the same Nike shirt, that is offensive. Like you are wearing something that somebody else is wearing and you, you want to distinguish yourself by your individuality, by customizing things or, or kind of seeking out uh, and hunting for thrift shop finds and other things like that. And so I think that biology actually, um, as a means of manufacturing, really aligns very well with this underlying ethos of human creativity in the sense that every single thing is unique. Every single thing is just a little bit different. And I think that our expectations right now of showing up and having everything be the McDonald's version, uh, no matter where we are, is is really unfounded and something that um, really undermines what it means to be human and what it means to exist in the world. And so I'm really looking forward to this this ideology and return to the natural form in which things are uh, unique in and of their own right, no matter what we end up producing or manufacturing. And the the transition point of that is going to be a little bit of, there's going to be a lot of friction there. So I don't disagree with what you said, but I do think that people, the same person, my and I'm talking about myself here, sometimes want something that is extremely in, individualistic or unique. And sometimes I do want someone who's wearing like a, a shirt that is something that I would wear, because then that means that I have something in common with that person and I have that feeling of belonging. Or sometimes a person wants what they can expect, right? Like you, like that's what the manufacturing is. Like you get what you can expect. You know that uh, what you buy, because you have experience with the same type of item, you know that you can buy the same thing and you ha- you know there's no surprises there. And I think that's, a lot of people want that as well. So I don't know. I think those two desires exist in the same person many different ways. Yeah, yeah. There's the, the safety, security, and familiarity where, no matter where I go, I can get Taco Bell, right? Like, and that's great. I love, I love me some Taco Bell. Um, but the caveat to that is that what am I actually eating? Like when I was working with uh, the Tyson Ventures team, I found out that the majority of the meat in Taco Bell is actually, uh, I think it's like 40% yeast extract that they've uh, replaced the ground beef with yeast extract. And they don't really talk about it altogether too much. But the reason why they do that is it's a lot more cost effective and it makes a lot of sense. And you don't really notice in terms of the flavor or the taste. But like there are these things that we're doing by um, just reverting to the mean and the status quo and familiarity and consistency and mass manufacturing that that really undermine both the human and planetary health in a very significant way, just kind of eroding what it means to be an individual acting in society, which is just kind of curious. Um, there, there was a really interesting question from Angel, which is more about um, neuroscience and changes in habits affect our brain, how the impact of seasteading can have on, on the brain, what, um, what algae, what my company does on the brain. And so this this is something that I'm actually going to be studying during my algae diet. I'm going to be taking um, microbiome tests all throughout. And so doing like a time series sample before, during, and after. I'm fasting going in. So I have a baseline metabolic uh, panel and, and kind of getting a sense of how my body changes throughout. I think that the gut microbiome is particularly on the sulfated polysaccharides um, and, and sort of fiber sources from uh, algae. 
is very different than terrestrial fiber sources. So initially, I'm going to be pretty stinky. I'm going to produce a lot of hydrogen sulfide, uh, which smells like rotten eggs. Not going to be great, but uh, that's because my gut microbiome is changing over and starting to process uh, these new kind of fiber sources. And then I eventually expect it to settle out. And uh, there's a lot to be said about these sulfated polysaccharides, particularly like phacoidin, as a means of providing like a broad-based uh, beneficial health effect on the body. And so um, as my gut microbiome changes, so too will my neurotransmitters change and my overall mood. So I, I expect the first like three to seven days are going to be really strange. Uh, in a variety of different ways. I'm going to be ornery, not going to be around people, my, my stomach's going to be messed up. Um, but after that, we'll see what ends up happening. I'm expecting some positive changes. I'm expecting some, like, definitely some interesting things. I'm wondering what kind of cravings, what sort of things are going to happen. Um, and then when you're when you're in these these tiny societies, to, to comment on the, the sort of impact of being in a in a small group that's really high-performing individuals. When I was in the moon habitat for about two weeks, I was surrounded by uh, five really astounding people. I had crazy imposter syndrome because most of the people I was with had like PhDs, um, had just, I, I was like, what the hell am I doing here? Um, and so I was in this habitat and I was doing actually five different psychological studies when I was there. Something that struck me more than anything else when you're in an isolated community is how important this this like tribal or communal mentality, this like familial bonds that form, and people end up reverting to a sort of like a, a familial relationship. If not, like you have the mother, you have the father, you have the like brother and sister, you have the crazy aunt, and I think that uh, one of the dynamics that tends to change is actually the uh, psychosexual relationships in that community can cause things to go a little out of whack because <clears throat> there's there's like this almost idea of, of scarcity in that sense which is kind of strange but yeah there there's like a lot of psychosocial research that still needs to be done like nasa puts sex to the side uh and doesn't talk about it in space which i think is so weird because it's such a core part of human identity um and then when you're you're in an isolated habitat there's other things too where um you don't have privacy there, there's very little privacy on a boat, right? There's very little privacy in a dome where you can hear every single thing going on. And so what does it mean to have uh, your own personal space, your own personal thoughts and feelings? And then for extended periods of time, what does that do as an impact on the brain? And so there's tons of research going on now in these analog astronaut habitats. I just went to the analog astronaut conference in Tucson at Biosphere 2 uh, as a means of, of talking about uh, various research on this. And uh, there's all kinds of psychological studies being conducted on these high-performing teams in these isolated, extreme environments and conditions. So if you're interested in that, just just look up different uh, research papers. Um, the Mars 500 experience, so people isolated in a habitat in Russia for 500 days. Fascinating. They they monitor pretty much everything about what's going on in the habitat too. So uh, yeah, just check out analog astronaut research to to learn a little bit more about how human dynamics and interactions. So, so when you're doing your seaweed, your algae uh, test, you're not going to be isolated. You're going to be going about your normal work and daily habits. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So I already know it's like a biased experiment. It's an N of one. So I'm I'm trying to to remove as much bias as possible uh, while still being a functional person in the world. Well, will you be recording your mental state? Because I know there are a lot of questions about microbiome and depression and, and mood stuff like that. I mean, not just mood, but also mental health. So it'd be great to have some, even if it's N of one data, it'd be great to have just that information too. Yeah, yeah. So um, I'm good. I'm documenting with my, my research notes on experiment.com. So you'll be able to follow along a little bit on the ups and downs and like the weird things. If you wanna sign up, um, I have like a poop tracking app and I can send you crap chats every day if you're really interested. Um, <laughs> that's that's if you're really, really interested. Um, the other things that I'm going to be doing are, are just kind of cataloging my moods, uh, journaling a whole lot, um, and kind of getting a sense of what what is going on with my body. So um, I have a continuous blood glucose monitor system, uh, which I'll be running during the experiment. 
just try to pull as much information as possible. I already know that it's, it's biased, um, but I'm conducting like an IRB, an institutional review board, which is like a third party group. It's going to take a look at my experimental methods and I have to answer a ton of questions for that. Um, so there, there's some things that I'm doing to try to make it a little bit so that uh, people, if they wanted to conduct broader studies, they could actually build on top of this research. And is the, the plan is to, to start with just a week and then maybe expand to a month? Yeah, yeah. So on the on the recommendation of my doctor, uh, she said that start with a week and check in particular the iodine levels, though, so particularly because I'm eating seaweed, there is excess iodine in seaweed. Um, and particularly if it's wild harvested. So I am going to check the iodine levels, make sure that I am not getting out of any range of, of actual metabolic levels, uh, in particular liver, liver enzymes and thyroid, enzyme, thyroid hormones, um, trying to get a sense of what, what is sort of the baseline. Um, I've done fasting metabolic panels right now, and so I, I know what my baseline is. So anything above the range that's dangerous, uh, at any point I could pull the plug on the experiment. But in particular, I, if the week's working really well, I also need to have all the supplies to continue beyond that. And so I'm in the midst of collecting all my supplies. I actually am surrounded by boxes. Um, my parents just came and visited and dropped off a bunch of my algae supplies from LA. They drove up a bunch of different stuff. So uh, I have a lot of materials around me. Uh, to end up kicking off the diet so very excited for that cool yeah and when does that start um so i'm expecting this to start i hope at the end of this week um it really does depend on the uh overall like nutrition and recipes that i end up designing i'm still testing out a bunch of different recipes but i have an event that i'm throwing on thursday the 25th in the bay area if you're here i'll drop the link in the chat um, it is supposed to be like a launch party for both the diet as well as for Spira in the Bay. And people who support the experiment, that's how they can uh, get the information about how you're doing the tracking information. Yeah, if you if you go to experiment.com, uh, you can follow along with the research notes on experiment.com. Um, yeah, the laboratory notes end up reporting all of the different things going on. I figured that was like a good... A tracking record of what's what's happening and so I'll, when i'm when i'm on the diet i'll probably be posting every day you can also follow me at the various social media so um my social is up that mr e so t-h-a-t-m-r-e it's also my discord name um yeah one of the better ways to follow along on uh, instagram tiktok whatever you name it great thank you so much um if there are no questions from the audience we can wrap up there but elliot it's been a wonderful conversation thank you so much we um shared a lot about seaweed but also i really enjoyed the general philosophy for for bringing good into the world and innovating in the world perfect yeah great talking to you carly thanks everybody for being here um, if you've got any questions, run request me on Discord as well. More than happy to always talk to you fellow seasteaders. Great. And best of luck eating algae for however long that goes. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Yep. All right. Thanks, everybody. The Seasteading Today podcast is produced and hosted by Carly Jackson. Send feedback and questions to podcast at seasteading.org. To support our podcast and the Seasteading mission, go to seasteading.org slash donate. If you'd like to learn more, read Seasteading, How Floating Nations Will Restore the Environment, Enrich the Poor, Cure the Sick, and Liberate Humanity from Politicians.